Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We have a very special guest today, someone who we have been really, really been trying to get in touch with forever and ever. So Amy, we are so excited that you're here today. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we are so intrigued by your work. Um, so for all of those listening, we have uh, Amy Murdoch here. She's the Reading Science Program Director at Mount St. Joseph University in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, Amy, we'd love to hear a little bit about you. And then um, Melissa will probably launch into the first question because I know um, she read about your program and, and we've been talking about it for a long time. But Melissa is the one who's been asking like a ton of questions um, about your program and got us interested in it. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about yourself and then we'll, we'll start launching the questions at you. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. And yes, I'm just delighted to be here and to talk with both of you. Um, so I am, as you said, the reading science program director. Um, I've been at Mount St. Joseph University as an, a, as a professor in the program and the director of the program for 12 years. Um, I was hired actually to start the reading science graduate program. And so now we have a graduate program that is fully online. We started as a face-to-face -face program, but we've evolved into a fully online um, reading science program. We, are, we were one of the first um, International Dyslexia Association accredited programs. Um, and we've continued, that, yeah, we've continued that accreditation. We're accredited at the accreditation plus level. Um, we have a master's degree, a dyslexia certificate, a reading science certificate, and then for educators in Ohio, an Ohio reading endorsement. And super excited to announce, we just started a doctoral program in the science of reading, and we recruited our first cohort, and that program will start uh, this May. So we're excited to, to add doctoral studies to our, our list of programs. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And then I'm also um, the chair of graduate education <laughs> at the at Mount St. Joseph. And we've done a lot of work throughout our school of education around implementing the science of reading across all of our graduate programs, initial licensure. And then a, a few years ago, we also did a huge overhaul of our teacher preparation at the undergraduate level. And so I'm super happy to announce that our school is now 100% science of reading and really has morphed into science of learning. It's really um, infiltrated in a positive way. All of our faculties um, courses and how, how we teach not just reading, but how we teach learning to children and to the future teachers. So that is amazing. <laughs> Melissa, are you going to enroll? Um, well, <laughs> yes, I, I have been looking at that doctoral. <laughs> I know you have. That's <laughs> <laughs> I have watched all of uh, Amy's videos online about it. <laughs> One of the fabulous people, I tell you. I'm excited <laughs> to learn from the, the people in our first cohort. So Awesome. Once Elliot's a little bit older, I'll <laughs> get more serious. <laughs> We're not getting any residuals or kickback from Amy's program either. We're just... Uh, <laughs> just very interested. This is free advertising for <laughs> Mount St. Joseph's Science of Reading program. <laughs> 
Um, so I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot, um, Lori and I have talked a lot about how, you know, our programs, we did not feel like we got um, the training that we wished we had gotten. Specifically, as we learn more about the science of reading, as like I have taken the letters course, as we've learned more about, you know, curriculum like wit and wisdom and we're just like, why didn't we learn this? <laughs> you know, why did we go to school for so long <laughs> and we didn't learn any of this? Um, and I guess, I mean, my question for you, Amy, is like, how did um, you all start to transition from, I, I guess, or, or even maybe explain like what the normal traditional teacher prep kind of looks like yeah. and how, how your program is now different and how you all got there? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So really, our story starts with our graduate program. And so we had a really fabulous faculty member, Dr. Richard Sparks, which some of your listeners may know because he's done a he's a great reading researcher and done a lot of wonderful work in the field. Um, You know, he's always been science of reading. He retired a few years ago from the Mount continues to be very active in the world of reading still. Um, but he he was always doing science of reading here at the Mount. Um, and But he was kind of the lone wolf. So he taught phonics and linguistics and our students would learn phonics from him in a very explicit, systematic way. But then they would go to other professors and learn very different things, um, learning styles and whole language approaches to reading. So it was really mixed. Um, our graduate program was kind of floundering. They had very low enrollment. And at the time, our dean, Dr. Myth Obach, who is another fabulous um, reading science person, said, you know, let's, let's use this opportunity to, to really create something that is focused on what the science tells us. And so they, at that time, this is 12 years ago, um, created you know, the beginnings of the science of reading program at Mount St. Joseph. And they were looking for somebody to really create the courses and the program. Um, and so I always joke, it's like the only place that would hire me because I, I was a science of reading person. <laughs> I, I was fortunate to always be that. I was I was trained in that model um, from the beginning. And so it was like one of those great timing things because my organization, I was working at a uh, organization that um, was an educational service center that served our region and did lots of trainings. Um, it was a fabulous organization that was really focused on the science of reading and science of learning. Um, but we were going through some changes and the organization that was taking us over, I did not like the direction they were going. So I was going to leave my job no matter what, because I just felt like I had to. Well, ma- real, uh, meanwhile, Mount St. Joe couldn't find anybody to hire because um, I hadn't been looking. And so it was like one of those late night things that I was looking online. It was like really <laughs> late to be looking for <laughs> academic positions. And um, this position that looked, felt like it was my dream job um, was was found. And so, you know, I was able to be hired very late. And so I, I began creating the, the, the graduate program in the science of reading. Um, And then, you know, for a long time, it was myself and Dr. Sparks, we were kind of the two lone wolves, but but we had the whole program. So it was just our program. Um, It was very small. It was just us who taught in it. Um, And then also actually Dr. Sparks' wife, Alicia Sparks, who's wonderful as well. And we really kept trying to influence undergraduate because both of us did teach classes in undergrad, but still, even with two of us, there was more non-reading science people. And even not just reading, but just people who came from a very holistic approach, um, constructivist approach to education in general. So even if it wasn't a reading class, it was still influencing how our our prepared teachers were understanding how children learn. Um, Kind of 
fast forward, our program took off and, you know, people really wanted the science of reading. And um, we partnered with our local school district, um, which is a large urban school district. And our graduates, you know, did us proud and did amazing things as reading specialists and kind of reading leaders in their in their schools. Um, and Cincinnati Public really started saying, we want Mount St. Joe graduates, you know, and and, and so it was really powerful. Um, actually, the superintendent of Cincinnati Public came and spoke at the Mount at one of our kind of, we have a summit for people considering education. Um, and she said, you know, you need to do in your undergrad what your graduate students are coming out with because, mm-hmm. you know, this is what teachers need to do. And, you know, it's a big urban district with all the challenges that, you know, urban districts have and yeah. um, it's all a real value. So that was a really powerful moment. I think um, when people ask me, how do we do this in our school of education? I think those partnerships with your local school districts can be really powerful. Um, because that was a big message. You know, they're, they're our number one employer um, for yeah. our students and for her saying, you know, this is who we want and we should do that. So that really helped. Um, we also, it was good timing because we had a really wonderful dean who kind of got it and um, was open, open to kind of hearing about the science of reading and, and why this is an approach that could be really powerful for teacher preparation um, you guys probably know Mark Seidenberg's book, Language at the Speed of Sight. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like an infamous chapter, chapter 11, that we talk about in higher education, where he um, kind of talks about the challenges in higher education. And so I gave my dean chapter 11. We always joke about <laughs> chapter 11. Um, and she read it and really wanted to understand it. Um, and so that began really our ability to change our undergraduate because she she saw the importance of it and I give her a lot of credit for really helping to move us towards that. Um, it's challenging because professors aren't prepared that way overall. And so we, you know, as Dr. Sparks retired and we've brought on new professors, it's been very challenging to find professors with that background. Yeah. Um, and we have some, we, we have fabulous professors now and we're, we were able to, to find people and, and also not just find people, but then also continue to build their knowledge. Um, so for example, all of our professors have letters training that we've done, many of us multiple times, many of us are even trainers. Um, <laughs> but we find that that's really important to continue those conversations. We also all have um, structured literacy training. We, we, we use Orton-Gillingham in our school. There's lots of great ways to do structured literacy, of course, but, but having some common training and common language we found to be really important. Um, and having our dean say, this is important, how do I support this? And to be honest, we had people who left our school, which is okay, because it wasn't the right match for them or for us. Um, but that was really important, having that common common training and common language, and then having that administrator who was willing to work and do this, you know, do that learning. She's going through letters training herself right now. Um, and really, you know, getting that administrative support, just like in schools, right? You need you need both bottom up and top down support to make real change happen. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you were talking. I was thinking, yes, the training and the connected tissue in the language and the administrator support. And then in the bigger picture, when you send them out into the schools to have that support there too. Um, yeah. I feel like you're just such a learning forward organization, like you've organized your team into that. I think it speaks volumes that 
you're still learning and doing that work to learn. And um, I, I think there might be like a myth about professors maybe who are like, oh, well, I've reached the highest tier possible. And now I'm asserting uh, all of my learning to my, giving all my learning to my students um, versus I'm continually being a learner. So that's like speaks volumes to me to hear you say that. <laughs> Lori, I think that's such a great, such a great point. We were in our reading science um, faculty, we have five reading science faculty members now. And, and we were just talking about that, you know, and how we, we, we have, um, we always do a book study each year. And then we also read articles right now. We're really focused on understanding phonological awareness better. But I think, you know, with a field that's focused on the science, you have to have that model, right? Because new science comes out all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that is super important. Yeah. Melissa, did you have a question? I saw you. I was, I was waiting for you, Lori. I know. I, go ahead. You go ahead. And then I'll, I'll hold mine. A yeah, not so much a question. I, I think I was reflecting a bit on my own, um, you know, undergrad and graduate studies, which I haven't, I don't do often really, you know. <laughs> um, but just thinking of like how isolated each class kind of felt. And I didn't know that at the time, you know, but looking back, I think back to like, I had an amazing linguistics class, right? It was super interesting and really cool. And I learned a lot of things, but it wasn't connected to what I do in a classroom with that, you know? So I I just think like, I'm just hearing what you're saying, Amy, of like being able to look at the whole program and make those connections across is so important rather than having each professor with their thing they teach (laughs) and letting them teach their thing. (laughs) Yeah. And that's hard. I mean, that's hard in K-12 schools and it's Mm -hmm. really hard in higher education because we do become kind of siloed just because, just because of being busy. I don't even think it's anybody, you know, intentionally doing that, but it's busyness, right? So um, three years ago now, we got a small grant to really look at our undergraduate reading core. And it was so fabulous to get the faculty together who teaches the reading courses. And this is undergraduate now. And we did that work. Exactly. We said, you know, what is, what are the key content that we want to teach? Um, How do we do that? And what belongs in which class? Because that happens sometimes too. Again, just like in K-12, you know, I really like teaching this, but maybe it belongs more in another class. Mm -hmm. And if I'm teaching it and Jan's teaching it and Beth's teaching it, you know, there's repetition is good, but you know, are we, are we losing important time to teach other content? Um, And those were really wonderful discussions that, that kind of guided us to thinking about what are the key knowledge and skills we want our um, teacher candidates to have? And then how do we build those across courses? So where do we introduce? Where do we go deeper? Um, and our our team actually was asked by the state of Ohio to create a model syllabi. And then we also created a planning tool for higher education. So if any of your listeners are in higher education, um, we used a planning tool and, and we used it in our work too. And it was really helpful to help us think through which classes do which kind of core standards around reading. And, and we based it off of the International Dyslexia Association's um, knowledge and practice standards. So that's exciting. I'm thinking like that, that really speaks to the lens of the student experience, which Melissa and I do talk a lot about on this podcast in terms of students in schools, um, K, you know, K-8, K-12. But when we're thinking about higher education students, it's, it's like equally important to have their experience be 
seamless across the board, but you're right. Like in the past, I mean, I remember my experience being very siloed and I'm going here to learn about this. And if the classes are coming from the same source, for example, the school of education, it would make a lot of sense that there is cohesion and that there are not a lot of uh, repetitious things happening, or I'm not going to your class and learning one thing that then contradicts the next class. So it does seem like it makes sense to do that for a seamless student experience, but also so that then students can go and apply this knowledge and skills that they're attaining into the real world in their, in their student teaching and eventually in their teaching experiences. Yeah. And that's tricky. And that's the the last couple of years, COVID caused us a little pause (laughs) as everybody, but we've really been trying to focus on exactly that. So how do we teach it, but then how do we make sure our students are able to practice it in the field? And then especially student teaching, having student teaching experiences that reinforce what we've, you know, taught them um, in the real world. And that's been challenging because as you know, in our K-12 schools, we have work to do to really make sure that there's science of reading instruction happening. Um, and so we've done a lot of work to make sure we get the right placements, but then also think about how we can kind of scaffold for our you know, teachers, people who are com- becoming teachers to see that. So they, they do a little bit in practicum, and then they come back and learn some more from us, because that's always one of the things we say, too. It's like, before they actually practice it, the knowledge is not as real as after they've practiced it. So how do we come back to the, some of those key concepts of, you know, why we're yeah. teaching this way? I, <laughs> That's a good I point. Yeah. Them, I love that. But they didn't know the gold we were giving, right? Like they didn't pay attention in the same way. Not that they weren't paying attention, but, you know, they didn't, <laughs> um, didn't really pick it up. So we've yeah. really tried throughout our program to have practicum and field experiences, not just at the end, but really scattered throughout and being very prescriptive about those. So training them on specific things that they can go in and do and see in a real classroom coming back and talking about them. Um, And then that student teaching experience is so important. And, you know, what we found before we were doing this work, um, when it was myself and Rick Sparks, you know, and again, it was more eclectic. And there was actually a value in that eclecticism, you know, they actually not only was it that way, but they sought to have it that way. (laughs) I remember a dean not my current dean, but a, a previous dean who was wonderful, but said to me, no, it's important that we have some reading science and some constructivism. Like th- that, and I think that's a true value in higher ed. Like it's good to be eclectic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think that it is good to be eclectic because then you're just confused, right? <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, Dr. Murdoch told me that, you know, science uh, of reading says that, you know, learning to read is very, um, you know, needs instruction. It's not natural. And then Dr. So-and-so says, no, reading's natural. Just set yeah. up. Your I mean, that was what was happening. So anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> um, having those really purposeful um, classes, but then practical experiences and then reflections again is, is really important. And we know we can do a great job instructing, but if they get a mentor teacher who's doing something very different, um, we know the mm-hmm. practice will probably match the mentor teacher because there's something very powerful about seeing, you know, real teaching in real classrooms. So, yeah, man, it makes me want to go back and do it all over again. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about that too. I was, I was thinking like what I'm curious about the field experience and what happens do, like, do your teachers regress? Do they, is like our 
the teachers who they are, um, are their mentor teachers using high quality instructional materials? Um, are they able to use these materials the way that they're intended? Like what happens in that field experience that might either support what you're teaching or not support what you're teaching? Yeah, so I'll talk about the not support just quickly and then I'll go to the support. But um, the not support kind of before we were as coordinated as we are now, and we still make lots of mistakes. So I don't want anybody to think that we've <laughs> got it all figured out because of course it's a, you know, it's got lots of moving parts and we're still, you know, refining how we train teachers. But well, the um, good news is on this podcast, we've never interviewed a perfect <laughs> guest yet. So <laughs> um, you're, you're in good company. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think, you know, what what we see happen that's not good is, is you know, we've trained them in one way, but they, if they don't see it happen, then they don't really know how to apply it. So then they really, time and time again, we've seen them really just emulate what their mentor teacher is doing, especially if it's, you know, a kind, well-liked, dynamic person, which is who we choose and who we've always chosen for mentor teachers. You know, that, that's really powerful. And I've even had... Um, you know, undergrads come back and do my graduate program, who I knew had some of the stuff that I'm doing in my graduate program, but they really moved towards a more constructivist whole language approach because of the settings they were in. And they reflected to me like, oh my goodness, like, I think you taught me some of this in undergrad and, and I just, you know, I have to get back to it, you know, and totally human nature, right? Um, where we find that it's working really well now is when we do find science of reading um, teachers that we place our, you know, teachers who are learning to be teachers with. Um, And we're really fortunate because we did the science of reading graduate program um, for a number of years here in Cincinnati. So we do have a lot of graduates of the graduate program who make fabulous supervisors and mentor teachers. And we try to really place them with those teachers. The other thing we started to do, which I'm so excited about, is we partnered with a couple of our local schools and we're going through training with them, um, with their faculty. So we're doing letters training with two schools right now where our reading faculty are going through the training again, but they're now doing it because we're, we're doing it with our school partners. Um, so that's really wonderful because then we can have those conversations about our student teachers and say, oh, we're going to place them in your classroom and we really want them to see some of the things we're learning and, you know, really kind of create those science of reading classrooms. Um, we also partner with these same two schools and our um, student teachers, our practicum students, go out and do structured literacy um, practicums. And again, we use Orton-Gillingham and those teachers can also be trained in Orton-Gillingham. And so we always, when we send students out and do the training with our with our students, our um, Mount St. Joe students, um, some of the faculty at the school also goes through Orton-Gillingham training. And that has proven to be really powerful. Um, the teachers love it. And then again, our students can see, you know, can see it in action in real schools. Cool. I'm going to change course a little bit. (laughs) I wanted to actually back up a little. I was thinking about um, one of Emily Hanford's podcasts where I don't remember who it is, but I've quoted it a million times. But someone says, like, your science is not my science. Right. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I'm I'm wondering. Men says that. (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm wondering, like, what 
how do you all decide what is in your program, right? Like this is what we want to teach in our science of reading program. And you also said like the science changes. So how do you keep up with Mm -hmm. um, what the science is saying? Oh yeah. Wow. That's a great question. So the, the reading science program originally was based on, because our our, um, original program was before the IDA standards came out. So we based it on Louisa Moat's um, um, teaching reading is rocket science, which was kind of like the the preamble to the IDA standards anyway. And and so I think it's nice for higher education to have standards that reflect the science because it's mm-hmm. it's really hard to you know pull all that together. And and of course the National Reading Panel so nicely laid laid out for us kind of those essential components of reading. Um, but then the how becomes you know the piece of it. So I think having standards that higher ed can look to is really important. But then beyond that, making sure higher ed understands how those standards were derived and that they've read and know the research that went into the IDA knowledge and practice standards, as my example, or teaching reading is rocket science um, standards, which again, have morphed into the IDA standards. Got it. Um, so, you know, that's one of the really important things the Reading League is doing right now. You know, they're really trying to help us define what the science of reading is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, Kenneth Goodman's statement, your science is, is not my science. You know, that's not science, right? Like, there is no my science or your science. There is just science. Right. Um, and science it's like, it, that reminds me of those flags that you see flying. It's like, science is real. Like, it always, I always am like, yes, it is. It's just science. And I always want to um, learn how to sew so that I can write uh, science of reading is real and that everybody, you know, can see. But yeah, I mean, I, it, it's true. Like it's not Amy's science and Lori's science and Melissa's science. There's not three different sciences happening now that we're talking about. We're talking about the one that yeah. is supported by all the research <laughs> that is the science of reading. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's there's clear definitions of what we mean. So we want peer review, we want things that have been experimentally derived, we want replication. So there's all those things that helps us define science in education or in biology or you know whatever field. But I think we also have to realize that science doesn't give us absolute answers, right? There's always interpretation and there's always um, different ways of implementing and, and, and there's still a lot to learn about you know, yes, we know some key things, but do we know everything? No, it doesn't tell us exactly everything we should do. Right. So I think the other important thing as we're training teachers is helping them to be skeptical and good consumers of science as well, um, so that we're not duped, right? I think too often, um, because we're busy, you know, we're duped because somebody dynamic comes around and says, no, this is science of reading, and that's what's happening right now, right? And why... Mm-hmm. The Reading League is doing their good work to try to help have a strong definition of the science of reading because, you know, it's like everybody's saying, yeah, we're science of reading. Oh, no, we're science of reading. And then you look at things and you're like, that's why, you know, <laughs> I don't yeah. see how they can say that. And and so I think um, another piece of training teachers and and helping us all is to be skeptical and critical and good consumers of research um, but understanding those foundational things that we do know that, again, have been nicely laid out in the National Reading Panel and, and have been updated with additional science and having an appetite for science. Like, so, you know, and, and I love organizations that are trying to make 
that more relatable to teachers. Um, teachers don't have time to read scientific studies of reading research. You know, that's, that's, that's hard for any of us to read. Um, it's important, but we also need good people yeah. to help us kind of make that translation of the science um, so that teachers can have access to it. But at the same time, you know, having that um, skepticism and criticism of like what's coming at us in a way that's helpful. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, that critical consumer piece is key. And I, I do think that after years and years and years of teaching, like new teachers might be willing to be more open than a teacher who's been teaching for many years, because likely in that those many years of teaching, you know, they might have been handed something that's like common core state standard aligned and, you know, here, do this. And then um, pedagogically, I don't know what, what, you know, sound and, you know, the stamps on the box and then um, aligns to different learning modalities. And there's another stamp on the box. And, you know, now it's like science of reading instead of really thinking like this probably is the thing that should have been the thing from the get go. Um, But that's really, really hard to undo and, and relearn all of this stuff, a new way to teach, a new way to learn. Um, it's really a new way to think. Um, if you, and it's not new, but it's a new way if it's new to you, like a used car, right? It's new to you. (laughs) Well, and and so often too, it's, it's, um, not just something new, but it's in opposition to what you thought was right. Right. I mean, I've had had teachers in my, um, graduate program who, you know, when we were face-to-face after the first class would come up to me and say, Amy, like, I feel like this one class has told me everything I've learned was wrong, which of course is dramatic, <laughs> and not, not true. But, you know, there's some core things that we have taught people about reading that are unfortunately just wrong. Yeah. And gosh, I really, I really hand it to those teachers who examine that and are able to, you know, incorporate new things into their models of practice. And I, and I think why they do is because it works. You know, that's, that's what I love when I hear my t- t- um, students say this to me, my, the teachers I work with is that, you know, the things I learned, I put them into practice and now my children are reading better. Right. Yeah. That's why we're moving towards this. It's, it's not about philosophy or ideology. It's about child outcomes. And when you teach reading, following the science in a structured, explicit manner, kids learn to read and that's the power. You know, that's why the superintendent said, I want Mount St. Joe teachers. It's not because she just likes Mount St. Joe. It's because she saw child outcomes that changed. And I think that's where I see teachers come to the science and want to learn because they're frustrated and all teachers want the best for their, for their students and um, are seeking, seeking those answers. Do you have any joyful stories from your students that they've shared with you? Like, can you recall any specific stories of joy as a student has, and I mean, a student teacher or teacher in your program, either undergrad or graduate who's doing the work has just been transformed. And um, maybe as someone listening can resonate, you know, the story can resonate with them. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my favorite kinds of stories, I'll tell you like a grouping of stories and then I can <laughs> a specific one, but my favorite kind of stories are when my students come back to me and tell me how excited they were to help a child who was really struggling. And you're going to make me cry, but <laughs> you know, those, 
I think so often our children who struggle the most are the children that um, teachers don't know what to do. And so the teacher gets frustrated and and you almost, it's like human nature. You just want somebody else to have that child. So mm-hmm. refer them to special education or sometimes they're a behavioral problem and they need a special school. Like it's it's a natural reaction. I can't help them. I want them to get help. So they probably need to go somewhere else. And what, what I always say that is my number one goal for my teachers who are my students is I want them to be happy to have the struggling student. Like I want them yeah. to see like I got so-and-so and oh my gosh, so thank goodness they're in my classroom because I know how to help them. Um, and so I get lots of stories that reinforce that goal that I have and where I hear students say that, like, I'm so excited, Amy, because next year my principal put me in the classroom that has a group of children that are, you know, being included and I get to help, I get to help them. Um, so and they, and, and they know what to do. Exactly, right? Not just that, right? That's yeah. the joy is because, I mean, everybody wants to help. And so if you feel this power, like I know how to help. This child is a fourth grader and a non-reader. Thank goodness they're in my classroom because I can help them. Like mm-hmm. that to me is like the biggest joy. Yeah. Um, Empowering so, for the teacher, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, I think too, reflecting on what the teacher may have done in the past, right? Like I'm thinking maybe it's a seventh year teacher. That teacher might've been able to say like, when I, ha- when I taught fourth grade and I had a group of non-readers before, I might've done things like, look at the picture. Exactly. What is, you know, or, um, a variety of other strategies that are not helpful versus let's use the letters in this word. And what do we know about language to help us? Yeah. So my specific story is, so I had a person who was a reading specialist and she came to our program, graduate program, um, to get her master's degree. I'm sorry. No, it was to get her dyslexia certificate. She already had her master's degree. So this is a very accomplished person already. And she was a reading specialist, went through our program. And at the end of her first year, she came to me and she said, you know, I have to tell you the story. And I was like, okay, great. So she had a student in her class um, on her caseload. So again, reading specialists, mainly working in small groups that she worked with all year and just was not very successful with the year before. And um, this is, you know, a child who had a lot of behavior problems as well as just really significant reading concerns. Um, and the mom had decided to move the child to another school. Um, and this student, after going through a year of our program, reached out to the mom and said, I now know how to help your student. Please, please come back to our school. Like, this makes me want to cry. So, like, not only did she, oh. like, want to have the student, but she sought him out. And he was a child who had lots of, like, challenging behaviors as well as, you know, learning concerns. But she knew the reason he was having challenging behavior concerns is because he couldn't read and it was embarrassing and all, all that stuff. So she actually sought out the mom and convinced the mom to bring the child, you know, back to their school. The child had gone to a community charter school because the public school they felt was not working for them. So I, that just made me so happy to hear that, yeah. <laughs> you know, she was recruiting those children. She wanted them so badly because now she knew how to help them. And that's that's what we want for all teachers, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Feel like no matter who shows up in your classroom, um, you have the, the skills and knowledge to, to help them learn to read. For sure. 
Amy, I'm wondering, so so often Lori and I even just have these conversations of like, well, why is this just not happening in every, <laughs> like, why isn't every college teaching this? We just don't understand. And um, I'm sure there are a lot of reasons and I don't know you don't know all the answers to <laughs> why or how we change things, but just wondering what your take is on like how, maybe, it, maybe it's already starting and we don't, we don't really know, but I'm just curious of, you know, how do we start getting more programs like yours? I think it is starting. So I think in the last um, five years, even, I've seen great movement towards the science of reading and higher education. I've, I've, in our state, and I know our state's not unique, a, a, across the nation, states are beginning to have that, that conversation about higher ed and how do we influence higher ed towards the science of reading. Um, it used to be the 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 non-constructivist, the science of reading person would not be as welcome at some of those meetings. I, I was somebody who was in those meetings and sat alone at, at, at a table. <laughs> um, but now it's really funny. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but now I feel like that there's an, there's an engagement, there's an awareness um, that, that this is important. I think the sources for that are a couple different ones. I think families, um, parents, advocacy has done a lot to put pressures on schools and thus, you know, higher education, um, definitely departments of education to do things, especially parents of children with dyslexia. Um, so I think parent advocacy has moved. I also see teacher advocacy moving the needle. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's talked about as much and maybe I see it from my teacher so much. So it's so in my mind, you know, teachers who learn this and they're frustrated. Like, why didn't I learn this in teacher prep? Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're speaking up and they're saying, yeah, I got my graduate degree. And so, some people who come to my program, they'll have, I have people who have two or three master's degrees and hadn't learned this yet. And, and you know, they're mad. <laughs> and they're not yeah. mad for themselves. They're mad for their, their students, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think amazing people, you mentioned Emily Hanford, who have really helped bring light to this. Um, organizations like the Reading League that I mentioned, um, IDA. I think there's been a lot of different kind of entities, you know, pushing the system towards this. Um, and I think people are, are changing. I, I know in the state of Ohio, we have a um, project at the state level where they are um, giving grants to higher education, ins- institutions of higher education who want to implement the science of reading. Um, and I've participated on that kind of the, the panel that was um, put together to guide this work. And then I've also participated on it as a, an organization or a higher institution, um, a university that's going through this work. And I have just been really impressed with the people who've come to the table. So university professors who weren't trained this way and they want to change. And I think, again, that's a really special person who can say, you know, I have a doctorate, but I didn't learn this and I need to learn this for my future <laughs> candidates. I think that's amazing. True. And I think we need to find a way to, to support that and to provide them a pathway to gain those skills and knowledge that is um, respectful rather than, you know, nobody feels good when you just tell them how, how bad they are and why don't you know this? And right. <laughs> right? But if you say, hey, yes. <laughs> here's, here's some training that you can go through. Here's some, you know, professional development. Here's some funds to give you to rework your 
your courses, I think, you know, providing them that grace to find a pathway towards this, I think is the way to go. I know states are doing different things, um, but at least in Ohio, I've been really impressed with the, the other universities at the table um, who didn't have any, you know, focused science of reading before this project and are really, really doing some great things to change their coursework. Good. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> it's very empower- it's empowering to hear about. Yeah. And there's other states. Like I know everybody hears about Mississippi, Colorado. I mean, Arkansas, a lot of states have projects doing things in different ways that are having an impact. I'm wondering, like thinking about the programming that is happening. And when we're saying science of reading, we're talking about um, the many strands that are woven into skilled reading. So we're talking about the foundational skills, such as the word recognition, and then the language comprehension piece, which also includes um, a big priority on background knowledge. Um, I'm curious if you might be able to share a little bit about how your program supports teachers in understanding like the um, language comprehension part of the rope, and then also how you see that playing out in the field with teachers. Um, Because I imagine if there's not high quality instructional materials, that it is a challenge for teachers. And when they get out in the field, it is a big juxtaposition from what they've learned in the classroom with you. And I know we're backtracking a bit, but it was like a lingering question. I wanted to make sure while we had you, I asked all my questions. (laughs) Especially in K-3, right? You know, I think there's um, there's an important and needed focus on word recognition skills. Mm -hmm. But we also know the importance of those language comprehension skills and, you know, I think to me, a big one is always background knowledge. So, you know, I I worry some of the schools I consult with, I worry when I hear, oh, we teach reading and math all day and they don't teach (laughs) science or social studies. And and we know that's so key for building that background knowledge, which becomes just key in reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. So so I do worry about that. And and we do talk about that. I I think that's probably (laughs) the biggest challenge we have in terms of placements is really being able to see a school that's doing that balance nicely and having, um, you know, having language comprehension skills taken care of in a way that we, that we know is important. I think it's hard because of course, language comprehension skills aren't as, um, you know, they're not as compact as our, like our phonics skills, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know there's debate, but um, you know, there, there, there is a certain number of phonics skills and we can kind of wrap our arms around them versus language, vocabulary, background knowledge, it's big and, you know, it's something that is a little bit trickier to wrap our hands around, but crucial. So in terms of how we teach it in our undergraduate program, you know, we have courses dedicated. So we have, we have courses dedicated to vocabulary and comprehension. And then we have a structured literacy practicum that is focused on vocabulary and comprehension skills and writing skills is part of that as well. And in that course, I don't teach that course, so I have to kind of remember. (laughs) Um, In that course, I know they have specific instructional routines that they teach their students that they um, go out and practice in their their practicum. And we've tried to partner with schools that are doing um, curriculum that does do that. And I, I don't know, I probably shouldn't name specific curriculums, but there are some good ones that, you know, do have those components, um, that really teach background knowledge, vocabulary, comprehension, and written expression skills. Mm-hmm. So we do try to match that with um, with their practicum. So same thing we do with our structured literacy around word recognition. We have that same model, a course, and then a practicum that's connected to it. And then in our student teaching, looking for schools that are, 
are doing both and, and really teaching all parts of, of reading. That is really helpful. Thank you. All right. Uh, so, Melissa, I'm thinking we're uh, we're at the advice part. Say, that's think? exactly what I was about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> we ready to get our advice from Amy? <laughs> so we always wrap up, Amy, with um, our guests leaving our audience with one piece of advice, which I know there's probably a million things you can <laughs> tell our audience. But um, if you have one thing to, to leave our guests with today, what would it be? Oh, just one. That's so hard. I know a lot about is that whole idea of pressure. So how do we put gentle pressure on higher education to change? And I think it's really powerful to hear from your graduates. Um, and if you were prepared or not prepared. And again, I think it's important to be respectful and, and to provide, um, you know, constructive criticism about how to improve your program. But I think one thing your listeners can do if they're classroom teachers or interventionists who are frustrated with their training is to help change higher ed by going back to your institutions that you graduated from and let them know, you know, let them know what, what teachers need to be successful in the classroom. Um, I think, I think that might be another place to put pressure. As I said, I, I think I see, pressure from teachers also changing reading in our country. Um, Mm -hmm. Pressure from parent advocates, wonderful reporters like Emily Hanford. But I think teachers also can have a big impact. And one of the ways is to speak out if your training didn't help you in terms of aligning with the science of reading and helping put pressure on higher education in that way. Because we need to change things. We need to we need to move the bar a little bit more quickly than we than we are. It's it's moving, but I think we can accelerate it by putting additional positive pressure on institutions. Yeah, yeah, that's a great piece of advice. I've never actually thought about doing that with the schools I went to. <laughs> Melissa, we can write a letter together to the okay. one we went to. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a big voice now, so. I know. <laughs> we, I know, and we don't want to ever like put anybody down, but it is a reality that it's, yeah. it is happening in some places and it's not happening in others. And you know, it was sad that we arrived on the scene. You know, Melissa, what year did you arrive on the scene? 2003. Okay. Yeah, it was 2004 and we arrived completely unprepared and we didn't know it until a decade later, or, you know, maybe a little bit less than a decade later, (laughs) but about a decade, give or take later. And it's really hard to think about just as many of our listeners, you know, share with us those kids who we impacted in the interim. Yeah. Mm. And we knew it there. The science of reading is not new. Not new. The term might be new, but I was trained in the 90s in it. And, you know, we've, we've known this for quite a long time. So that's why it's time to accelerate, right? Sometimes people say that to me, like, oh, I'm surprised your program's been around for 12 years. I thought the science of reading was new. <laughs> yeah. Not. Yeah. <laughs> reading panel, National Reading Panel came out in 2000. And that wasn't even new. That wasn't new then. Yeah, I think there's uh, something dated back to the 80s. I should get it and try to post it on our website. <laughs> yeah, for Project Follow Through, which was a large-scale reading research, was in the late 60s, early 70s. So we've known this, but we need to help. We need to help get it into teacher training, and we need to help get it into our schools in a stronger way. There's hope, but we need to accelerate. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like we should have a podcast. Um, themed I have a dream and just have like a science of reading dream and just 
like build out exactly what we would want, like from <laughs> higher ed all the way through teacher, you know, teacher training and then teachers in the classrooms with the materials and all the way through the teacher experience and the student experience. Like it'd be so amazing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Melissa's like, put your crazy ideas away. I don't time for it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll work on that. (laughs) Maybe next year. (laughs) Amy, it was so amazing talking with you and we've been wanting to just ask these questions for so long. So we're so grateful that you took some time to talk with us and to answer our questions and we wish you the best with your program and maybe maybe we'll even end up in there one day yeah. <laughs> come join our doctoral program yeah thank you so much I hope I met your needs and answered okay for sure you You're did amazing. it was amazing thank you. you thank you both yeah. have a good rest of your day you, you too, too. Bye. You. bye bye, bye.